Okay, I want you to picture a dilemma. You like dilemmas? Here's a dilemma. Uh, two rival sports teams in a championship game. Uh, both teams have a Christian on each side, or maybe lots of Christians or whatever. And both Christians recite a very familiar and often thought of verse. Philippians 4.13. So side A, side B, they both cite, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Who's going to win? How do you know? What happens if you lose? What does it mean if you don't win? What if you have a game-winning shot? And you say, I can do this, and you just airball it. Then what? Does Christ not sufficient? Can we not do all things through Christ? That's what this verse says, right? I saw a t-shirt someone wore recently that said, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. and had to do with this verse right here. Uh, this is a kind of Christian hocus pocus, right? That we believe if we cast this verse over anything we do, we're not going to fail, right? That's often thought of. And I Googled yesterday uh, most popular Bible verses in America or something like that. And I clicked on five sites in a row. Didn't skip one of them. Five in a row had, you know, 25 verses, 100 verses, whatever. And Philippians 4.13 was in every single one, every time. So it's a very popular verse. Uh, I can also testify to the fact that I used to work at Lifeway. I cannot tell you how many things had this verse on it. Uh, when I met my wife, she had a little card with this verse in her wallet. So fun fact. Uh, whether it's Tim Tebow, who played for the Florida Gators, he had this verse under his eye. Or Stephen Curry for the NBA, uh, for the, the Warriors now, and the NBA, they have this verse as well. What is the all things that Paul speaks of? Uh, I can testify that I also had this verse on my basketball shoes in high school, and I still didn't shoot very well. So something is wrong. Didn't go very far after high school. So the question is, what is the all things that Paul speaks of? If, if it isn't all things the way we mean it, then we are spreading unbelief, right? Well, if we can do all things, but you can't win a baseball game, then I guess Christ really isn't sufficient, apparently, because you can't even win a baseball game. So what's the all things that Paul speaks of? Well, not even Paul had views like that in his mind. He wasn't thinking of the Olympic Games or a free throw. He wasn't thinking about those things. He had other things in mind as he was in Roman house arrest. Remember that? So Paul's writing of this verse is in relation to his situational setting in prison, he has an invincible resting in God because of this truth. And he talks about it here very clearly is the reality of being content. So the question you should ask is how content are you now in your present life? Are you content? To quote Spurgeon, as I always do, Spurgeon said this, if you are not content with what you have, you would not be satisfied even if it were doubled. So are you content? Uh, being content, here's maybe a simple definition that could be helpful for you. Uh, contentment is being so satisfied in God that what pleases God pleases you. We all, we all know the verse that Jesus prayed in the garden. Uh, not my will, but what? But yours, but by thine be done, yours be done, right? So Jesus' greatest desire wasn't what he wanted, but what God wanted. That's contentment. We're satisfied. If God wants it, we want it too. That's, that's, we're resting in that. We have we're lined up, and we delight in it. Psalm 37.4 says this, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, if your delight is in the Lord, your heart's desires will be about who? Well, about the Lord. 
So he will give you everything that the Lord wants you to have. It's, it's, just, it's a simple verse to remember. If, if you delight in Christ, your desires will be Christ-worthy, and he'll give you those things. He won't leave those things from you. So in 1 Timothy 4.8, we read other verses about contentment. He says, Paul writes this, For a while, bodily training, so going to the gym, is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And as we read in the reading response, 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. So the opposite of being content is to be covetousness, right? To have a covetous spirit to covet things that lies within all of our hearts. With Black Friday coming up, the advertising is meant to make you want things. That's how they make money is off you being a sinner. So consider that next time you go shopping. If they know I'm sinning. That's why they want me to be here, right? Covening is like a, a hibernating bear. It doesn't really come out all the time, but it does. It's big and scary and wants more. It, it's, just, it's just a big desire for more, right? Think about Paul sitting in a Roman prison. He had a sustaining power in a hand that was not his own. It is actually in prison that he knows and grows in contentment. So the question is, how do we grow in contentment? How do we conquer these desires behind impulsive buying or bigger and better or wanting more or maybe you envy other people's house spouse and the things they have or the personality or who they are or you're embittered about who you are that's not fair he gets that and i get this that's not fair right maybe you feel passed over in life this is what i got look what he has look what they have that's not fair that's coveting that's that desire that springs forth all those sins so what's the cure does the bible actually have anything to say well, I think it certainly does, and Paul's passage here is very, very rich with that. So I want to show you three crucial aspects of finding our contentment in Christ. And just like always, they're linked together, so if you understand the first one, the next two will come very quickly. So let's, let's walk through the passage here, starting in verse 10. Number one, God's providence in our situation. So the first aspect is God's providence in our situations, verses 10 through the first half of verse 11. Verse 10, Paul writes this, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have, re- you, you have revived your concern for me. So again, Paul is he's saying, in the Lord. He, re- he rejoiced greatly in the Lord. Right? This is the, the ninth time in Philippians that he's used the phrase, uh, in the Lord. So it's very, very helpful for Paul. This is shorthand for Paul of saying, I exist only in the Lord. I don't exist in any other way. All I am, all I want to be, all I have is in the Lord, right? He views his entire life this way. There's never a time where Paul isn't in Christ. He doesn't compartmentalize Christianity, right? I'm a Christian when I'm in church on Sundays, and when I'm not, I'm just doing other things. Paul says, my whole life is in the Lord. Therefore, he has, he says, great rejoicing in the Lord, right? His joy is derived from all that God is for him, towards him, and who God is in himself, Probably my favorite verse from 1 Corinthians in our study through that book was 1 Corinthians 6, 19, which is the simple phrase, I am not my own. This is Paul. I'm in the Lord. I'm not my own. I don't belong to him myself. I've been bought. I am not my own. And Paul is Christ-centered. He orbits everything around the sun. Just like the planets, Paul orbits his life around the sun. But look what Paul is rejoicing about. If you, if you read this, just... Off the cuff, it seems very, very peculiar what he says. Look at, look at that again. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have, re, you have revived your concern for me. This kind of, kind of sounds selfish, doesn't it? 
I'm really glad you're worried about me again. Man, I'm so glad you care about me. It's kind of kind of self-absorbed, doesn't it seem that way? Well, Paul's not being selfish. He's actually speaking about other things. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9, and other, and other verses in 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks much of the, quote, brothers of Macedonia. If you recall in Acts 16, the uh, founding of the Philippian church, they were a leading city in a Roman colony named Macedonia. So Paul is referring to the Philippians in 2 Corinthians over and over. He speaks of them having great concern for him. Uh, he boasts about the Philippians giving over and over in 2 Corinthians, and he does this at the end of our letter here in Philippians. Meaning, Paul is saying the church in Philippi has given to him repeatedly. If you remember in chapter 2, Paul speaks of Epaphroditus bringing a gift. He speaks of the same thing in chapter 4, verse 15, that again and again, this church continues to give to Paul. So because of his imprisonment, his missionary efforts have been put at a halt. Paul can't open or preach anymore. He can't go found a church, right? He has a pretty prolific prison ministry, as you can probably imagine. However, Paul is not rejoicing in a selfish way. He's rejoicing out there, concern for the gospel work to spread. So he's not saying, I'm glad you gave me money. What he's saying, no, 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 I'm glad you have concern for the gospel to go forward. And now they have another chance. One commentary made the note that the Philippian church, where Paul is now in jail, was founded about a decade ago. So it's about 10 to 12 years is kind of the estimation. And since then, they have not been able to send Paul any gifts or supply his preaching and ministry work. But now that he's in prison, now they have another opportunity. He says, he says it very simply, right? They have a revived concern. He says, again, you were indeed concerned, but you had no opportunity. So they had concern, but they couldn't get to Paul. He's in jail. They couldn't get to him. But now they have another chance to finally get gifts to Paul. And from prison to this gift, Paul is speaking of this revived opportunity. They now have, God has given them another way to minister, to be a minister of the gospel. This is by God's providence. God's providence is God's meticulous, sovereign detail over everything. So we talk about God being sovereign, having rule over all things. Well, providence is how he accomplishes these things. It's the uncountable number of steps, actions, wills, people, times, events, circumstances, you name it. That's how that's God's providence through the world to do certain things, to work out his plan. You can think of providence as a long chain. God has decreed the beginning of the chain and the end of the chain. And the links in between are his providence, how he accomplishes what he wants to do, right? You think of the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, how he was betrayed by his brothers, left in jail, left to rot, right hand of, or he, he's taken out of prison, then he goes back to jail. I mean, this horrible story. Well, when Joseph recounts it, he says in Genesis 45, verses 5 and 7, you don't got to go there, I'll read them for you. But he uses this phrase twice, and God sent me before you. That's strange. I'm pretty sure your brothers sent you here. I think those slave buyers sent you here. Well, no, no. Joseph understands that ultimately this is God who sent me here. God's providence. You didn't do, you sent me. It wasn't you. It was God sending. Faith sees the hand of providence. In my undergrad in Evansville, um, I had an economics class and we talked about this. This is a non-Christian school. We talked about this. Uh, the invisible hand in economics that always evens out the economy, which right now it must be dead because it's not very even. But the point is, 
Then there's some kind of invisible hand always doing things. Well, they never call it God, but we would call it God's providence. God is this invisible hand of doing things. So perhaps your sorrow in life, your frustration with your lot in life, is due to the lack of trust you have in God's providential care in your life. But friends, if we are in the Lord, how else would you rather have it? This is the best life we could have is God's intention for you, right? Your best life now is what God has ordained for you now. Not some better idea of it in our thinking. If your joy is, if, if your joy is in the Lord, it's so God-centered, you can rejoice at God's providence. For Paul, that even means being sent to the prison. It means dark clouds. It means if our joy is in the Lord, we shall constantly feel God's pleasure in his will for us, right? If God ordains it all and we love the Lord, this is for our good, right? Proverbs 19, 21 in the ESV, I like because it rhymes. So if you remember a verse, it rhymes for you in the English language, in the English, and it says this, Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. But what's funny is, look, look at verse 11. Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Paul, you're in prison, man. It's okay to be in need. Because Paul's saying, I, this is God's providence. I have no needs. I'm right where I should be. I have no, just funny that Paul would say, I have no needs. When if I were in jail, I would say, my needs are countless, Paul. But why does he say that? I want to read you a few words of one of my favorite hymns called God Moves in a Mysterious Way and talks about God's providence. It says this, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by, with feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. So Paul knows this is a dark cloud. This is God's, God's providence is good. He has good intention. This is always good, right? So the first way to have contentment to recognize God's providence has me where I am by design on purpose. In the Lord, right? I can rejoice in that. Secondly, God's remedy in our season. So God's providence in our situations, God's remedy in our season. Look at verse Second half of verse 11 and verse 12. I want to show you two things here. The first thing is Paul calls this the secret. So there's a remedy and it's a secret. Look at verse 11 and 12. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So Paul tells you right off the bat, there's, there's a secret he names it in verse 11. It's to be content, right? The secret in life, in all your seasons, is to be content. To be content. The word for content means to be self-sufficient, to be satisfied. If you think of the word content, like the word contained, it's the same idea. You're, you're good. Everything in you is good. You're contained. You're self-contained. You're content. Contentment is the battle of the inner man. It's the battle of the heart, right? It's this, this satisfaction, no matter the season of life, it's this satisfied rest in what God has done and who God is. And Paul says that he has learned this, so it takes time. 
Contentment is a learned habit. He says in whatever situation he is in, meaning contentment is not inherently an outward duty. It has nothing to do with what's going on outside of you. It's inward. It's having an evergreen of a heart, right? Evergreens are green all the time. They're forever green after all, right? Well, it's contentment. Is, it's an evergreen. It doesn't matter the season. It's evergreen. It's ever content. Fundamentally, then discontentment is the mother of an innumerable offspring of sin. Think of what discontentment does. Does anybody know what the 10th commandment is? You shall not covet, right? That's the last commandment, Exodus 20, verse 17. And if you think about it, as Martin Luther understood, the breaking of the 10th commandment is the breaking of all other nine. The breaking of the first commandment is the breaking of all other nine as well. So the first and 10th are kind of linked together. You shall have no other gods, You shall not covet. Luther says these are linked together, and I think he's absolutely right. And because of this, according to Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul says that covetousness is idolatry. That's a breaking of the first and second commandments, right? Which is the link to the uh, the, the other nine. So therefore, coveting an idolatrous heart, it's the birth pains of many, many sins. Consider this, what drives theft? I want that. Well, then go buy it. Nope, I'm going to take it. Just go get a job. Nope, I want it, right? Well, just stay for the test. No, I want it. It's taking, right? What drives murder? I want them dead. I don't like him. I like me more. I I mean, think, think think, think of all these commandments. What drives lying? I want myself to be thought of well. And I'm going to do it whatever the cost. I mean, think of any sin. What drives it is coveting. It's a self-love, a self-treasuring of yourself. It is therefore impossible to be content and covetous at the same time. That's by design. You can't have both in your heart. You can't serve two masters. You can't do that. So it's by design that you're either content or you're coveting. Luke 12, 15, Jesus gives this warning. Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For or because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So friends, what is coveting but a complete rejection of God's rule and providence in our life? Is it not? Well, if I were God, I would have that. I'd give it to me. Well, I, I could do better than that. I could just take that. And that's, it's rejection of who God is. It's a disordering of loves, right? Preferring the creature, as Romans 1 says, over the creator. Well, if I was in charge, I would have that. So I should, God doesn't know what he's doing. Clearly, I know. I know who I am. I mean, it's just, this, it's insane, right? Isn't covenant just, we all do, and it's insane. It's wanting possessions over the provider, It's worth noting that because this is in one of the Ten Commandments that God not only judges our actions like lying and stealing and our words like lying and blasphemy, but he also judges our desires. See, no one could see coveting in your heart. It's invisible, right? It's it's inward. It's a disposition. It's a desire. No one could see, but God actually judges our desires. If it's a sin to desire it, it's a sin to do it. It's very clear. So whatever our ears listen for, whatever our eyes gravitate towards, whatever our minds fixate on, that is what you desire. 
Where your treasure is, there your heart will be every single time. There it is, right? That's what you covet. And coveting is dangerous because it's this slow freezing over. It's not instantaneous, right? You're not, oh my gosh, I'm coveting. It's slow freezing over of a discontented heart. The more you covet, the more you get embittered. The more you get embittered, the more resentment that you have. The more resentment, it's the seed that grows and sprouts. Then all of a sudden, it's pride. If I were God, I wouldn't be doing that. We never say that, but that's what we think when we covet. There's a well-known book series, and there are movies now, of course, uh, called The Lord of the Rings. Uh, they're excellent, worth your time. Uh, zero cussing in all of them. Awesome. Zero immodest dressing. Awesome movies. Go read them. Written by a Christian. Anyway, uh, the richest and most greediest creature in all of these books is this great dragon named Smog. He's a big, big dragon. And he resides in this big mountain with this inside with this uncountable amount of gold. I mean, it's like as big as the mountain. It's filled to the brim. He's in the mountains where he lives on this mount of gold and riches and treasure. And it's referred to as this dragon sickness. It's what coveting is. It's this dragon-like just want. Just want. I mean, it's just, it's a serpent, right? Just evil desire. It's this dragon sickness. But Paul says the secret of conquering these desires is to be satisfied with a superior treasure, right? The desire to, to have is put to death with the satisfaction of having. You won't want if you already have something better, right? None of us are envious for little crumbs when you have a sandwich. Yeah, take the crumbs. I don't care. I got a burger. Like, we're good, right? I want to show you how, how this works out in your life. Turn your Bible over probably two pages, maybe one, to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. These are verses I probably recite pretty regular, and I hope you will put them to memory, as this is very helpful for your life in many ways. But Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4, and then verse 5. I referred to a while ago, but you'll see why these verses are here. Colossians 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So that's the big, be satisfied with Christ. He's your life. Think about him. Look at verse five. Put to death, therefore. What's that therefore? Because of verses one through four. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So if your minds are satisfied with Jesus Christ, you can put to death these sins. Do you see that? You conquer small desires with a greater treasure. It's very, very simple. His sending of things in our life, his ruling in our life is much better than what we could, we could gather for ourselves. A dead Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs said this, Since God is content with himself alone, if you have him, you may be content with him alone as well. The psalmist in Psalm 73 verse 25 asked the question, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So friends, ask yourself this morning, is Jesus Christ enough for you? Is he enough? 
is having he who owns all things enough for you? That's the question that we must ask ourselves when we covet. The second thing is the season. So first the secret. Now, So that's the secret. How do you do it? In what way? Well, these are the seasons that will happen. Look at, look at verse 12. Paul gives off numerous situations here. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every, so you name it, circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So Paul recounts for us the various seasons of life that he has been through. He's been through the full spectrum, right? The highest to the lowest, the hungriest to the fullest. You name it, Paul says, I've been there, right? So let's first look at his lowliness, his hunger, his need. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says that he and the apostles suffered hunger and thirst, poorly dressed, buffeted, and homeless. In 2 Corinthians 11, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 27, Paul says, Something very similar about being adrift at sea. He speaks of all these troubles, and he specifically mentions this. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. So Paul's been through it all. Now we, myself included, uh, I don't like those things. I like security. I like safety. I like comfort. Microwave, press a button. I like that. That's, that's me. That's fun. Uh, Jesus' manger, I think where he was born, Jesus had, he's born in a, in a manger. He says in Luke 9 that he had nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was, after all, buried in a borrowed tomb. He even owned a tomb to be borrowed in, to be buried into, right? So Jesus himself was very lowly and poor. The apostles were constantly on the run, far from ease, far from a steady life, Far from riches, their lives were not smooth, not financially stable, not restful. They were, quote, as Paul says, brought low. Therefore, very simply, it is no sin to be poor. Right? It's not evil to not have a nest egg. There's no sin in lowliness or difficulty. 1 Samuel 2.7 says this. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. The Bible is not embarrassed about this up front. God says, I do it, and that's just how it is, right? He can say that. If Jesus took upon himself poverty and lowliness and embraced it with a radiating trust in his Father, how should we face lowliness and poverty? Friends, if God has chosen this lot for you, like Christ Embrace it with joy. It's good for me. It's good for me. My father says so, right? It's worth knowing that to be low in this life is really just a parable of the state of every spiritual person, right? Every person on the planet is spiritually poor. Uh, bankrupt, we often say, right? They're morally bankrupt. Every man is hopeless and poor before God. There is no one good no, not one. There's nobody impressive to God. Riches certainly don't impress him. What are riches to an eternity but cobwebs to stop a falling rock? You can have a lot of money in the world. It's not going to stop you from falling into hell. It's like trying to stop a rock with cobwebs. It's like walking over a rotted bridge. It's going to fall through. It's not going to last, right? Jesus Christ himself abased himself 
for sinners. So we know that he took on our poverty, not only financially in his life, but also our spiritual poverty for our good. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Paul writes this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So Jesus abased himself for sinner. He became nothing that we would become exalted with him, right? Think of his death on the cross. He demonstrates his love for us, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. It's repentance and faith in Christ that restores someone, not their earthly possessions, right? And Jesus promises that the meek will inherit the earth by faith. So God's design in lowliness is to train our hearts to be what they truly are, dependent upon God. Usually when you struggle financially, you seem to pray just a, a bit more, I think. At least I hope you would. Well, that's, that's who we really are, right? That desperate heart, that's who we are in truth. We really are dependent. We really are We have no security, no assurance, no safety in this life apart from God's will. That's what lowliness should show us. And consider that God has chosen to spare you from the mirage that money can bring. It's a dry well. It betrays. And I consider that if God had made me rich, I may never have found my need for Christ. It's mercy. Likewise, in verse 12, Paul speaks of having abundancy or plenty. So likewise, Paul has been very, very low, but also Paul speaks of being pretty good, smooth sailing. And times he had no needs, no struggles. He was abounding. He had plenty. His supply wasn't lacking, nor is he having any situational struggles. Rather, Paul had a sustained, well-taken-care-of, well-supplied, no-needs life at times. And we say, praise the Lord. That's good, right? Jesus himself, prior to his incarnation, was and is infinitely wealthy. Psalm 2 says that the nations are Jesus' inheritance for his work on the cross. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Angels worship and obey him. He orders and rules all things. It's one of the Old Testament prophets, the minor prophets, where God says, all the gold, all the silver, it's mine. So God is infinitely rich. We can say that with no shame. 1 Chronicles 29, 12, both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. So, very simply again, it is no sin to abound or to have plenty. It's just not sinful, right? It's not wrong to have a lot of money. It's not wrong at all. The Bible never says that. There's no evil in having a larger financial bracket to be in a higher position of wealth or power. God has not done any sin to raise someone up to great wealth. There's no evil there, right? No evil. However, we often marry together prosperity with God's favor in a special way. Charles Spurgeon said, It is never said, Whom the Lord loveth, he enricheth, but it is said, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. It is often in comfort that we daydream away from the Lord. Kind of like putting a baby in, a, in your arms. Not like Abigail, because Abby likes to be held on one side, not the other side. But typical babies are rocked to sleep in comfort, right? Well, comfort and wealth, they often lull us to sleep to real, to real trouble, to real eternal realities, to actual things. I think of the death, maybe you heard this week, of 
the famous actor Matthew Perry, who's in the show Friends. I never watched the show Friends, but I know who he is. And he spoke about how he prayed one prayer when he was a little kid. He's not a believer, but God, what if you do? Make me rich. And weeks later, he's picked up on some TV shows, and there it goes. But he spoke about, before he died in a jacuzzi, just in his 50s, that fame didn't do what he thought it would do. It just it was deceitful. It didn't promise what he thought it would promise. It didn't make him feel the way he wanted to feel, right? He just said it was empty. So contentment, then, is like a diamond in the Christian life. Sometimes diamonds are buried in the cave, and they're dirty, and you can't see them. Or they're in the front glass of a jewelry store. But its beauty remains the same, right? It just, needs, it just has a different appearance. But the beauty still, that's what contentment is, whether in lowliness or in lifted up, it's still beautiful. Contentment is a rich jewel. The secret is resting in the power and surplus of Jesus Christ. If he has all things at his disposal, can he not summon you to have a better job? Can he not summon you to get a tax break, believe it or not? Can he not summon riches and blessings and needs at his beck and call? Like a soldier in the military, hey, come here. They come. Jesus can summon anything and say, come, go to him, and they will go to you. That's enough for us. Many of you here likely are lovingly familiar with Psalm 23. I want to read it for you. Maybe you'll see it in a new light. The first four verses, Psalm 23 says this. has to do with his exact idea of being content in high and in low. Psalm 23 verses one through four says this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. That's rich. That's good. He makes me, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. That's all good, right? Rich green, peaceful waters. Woo, that's abounding. Look at this. Verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So whether it's in the valley or in the green pastures, he says, I'm not going to want. You're my shepherd. I'm not going to want anything. So where I want to be is with you. That's the secret. That's the secret. Thirdly and lastly, God's Christ is our sufficiency. Look at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So far from being about throwing a touchdown, right? Definitely not. This verse is actually, it's much better than that. Do you see that now? What's the all things? Well, you just told us in any and every circumstance, high or low, in between all things. I, I can do all those things through Christ, right? Do you see that? So maybe a, a helpful way to render this verse is something like this. I have strength for all things through him who strengthens me. Meaning, whatever God has sent you into, he has a sufficient Christ for you. God both sends and sustains. God equips and enables. For all seasons, we have one Christ. Jesus Christ is inexhaustible. He is all-surpassing, overabounding for our need. Remember, Paul's not speaking in his ability, I can do all things, because, well, I am the Apostle Paul after all. That's not what he's saying. He's not boasting in his ability, but in Christ's ability. This is not a verse about Paul having power. Paul knows he's weak. He can't get out of prison. He's stuck. 
He knows Christ is the center of his life. Christ is sufficient. Consider this, for Paul to boast in himself would be like a, uh, your, your iPhone charging cable boasting in its great power. Well, thank you for the wall. I can't do a darn thing, right? If it's just sitting there, it's just like a noodle. You can't do anything helpful, right? Only when it's connected to power does it have any value at all. Apart from the source, it is nothing. It can do no thing. Its sufficiency lies in which electrifies it, right? Same for the Christian. Friends, having Jesus Christ before us in his storehouses of grace in comparison to our need is overabundant. I mean, it's too much to even fathom. As if you try to take a teacup and drain the ocean, your needs will not do it. You just can't. You can't exhaust them. So friends, go to Christ empty and he will satisfy. Go to him needy and he will provide. Come to Christ dependent and with his everlasting arms, he will sustain you. The psalmist writes, open your mouth and I will fill it, God says. Come needy. All who weary and heavy laden, come, I will give you rest. Spurgeon again said this way, I have a great need for Christ and a great Christ for my need. Friends, that is the sweet truth, isn't it? Brothers, do you see this? Don't you see that God's aim in all of your life is to awaken you to the reality that leaning upon yourself is futile? God loves to frustrate your own confidence, to undo your sense of self-sufficiency. He likes to do that. He likes to. It's a gift of grace that God blows off this dust from us of being sufficient and says, you got nothing. I'm your sufficiency. What fool would despise a good doctor? We like good doctors, right? Tell us the problem. So I know, so I know what to do, right? Or what fool would despise a shipmate who would find a, a dangerous leak under the ship? Well, God reveals to your trouble to show you the cure. Christ is our all in all. He is more than enough. I think the Christian life is very paradoxical. I mean, a paradox means something that seems to be, I don't make any sense, does it? Paradoxical. It's kind of strange, right? Well, Christians are discontent with the world in two different ways. First, we know that the world won't satisfy. We're like, I just want more stuff. I wish it would help me. Right? We just, we, we're always reminded of our failure to believe that. But paradoxically, we are happy to know the world can never satisfy us. It means we're built for another home, right? It's like trying to fill a circle with a triangle. It's just not going to do it all. It's just partial, right? Jesus Christ strengthens Paul in prison. He sustains his life, sends relief, restores his soul. Jesus Christ is his joy. One man put the illustration this way of being discontent as a Christian. It's very um, mockery of us, but I think you'll understand the illustration. It's like having a, uh, I'm not going to mention kings or queens in England because I get them wrong like every time. They're all named James or Henry or something. But think of a newborn baby prince crying in his cradle. What are you going to say? Oh, give me a break. Look where you live, right? The Christian life is like that. We're like little newborn princes, he says, weeping in the cradle, not knowing that there is a kingdom right before us. What are you discontent about? Look what's before you. 
2 Corinthians 9, 8 says this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Friends, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. For every thought of your situation, take 10 thoughts of Christ. When things arise like the flood, see Christ over them, ruling them, guide and see him, see him by faith. Psalm 107 verse 9, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. There's much grace in God's pantry for you. My kids love the pantry, all the snacks in there. God has a rich pantry of grace for you. He likes to fill hungry souls. If he delays, don't turn from him. Press into him. It's like getting a a fresh Christ every day. His love has neither bottom nor shore. His love subdues us, sustains us. Christ's love is so kingly, it will not wait for tomorrow. It must have your throne of your heart now. I want to end with a story of prison. In the 1600s, a man named Samuel Rutherford was born and became a Scottish minister. He was a pastor after teaching at a, at a, um, a school, uh, got some degrees, one in ministry and one just in regular teaching um, in 1627. But the Episcopal Church, thank Roman Catholic-ish, okay, uh, they grew and they gained power over the Scottish Free Church where he was a part of. And he went to jail for two years. He was released. Hey, all right. But then again, he was imprisoned about 40 years later, this time for high treason, and he awaited the death penalty. He's very sick, getting very old, and he knew he was going to die, likely in prison. He was banished from his own community, from his own church. His people could not see him. But it was actually in prison that he discovered God's goodness for him. He writes that this He writes this and he paints this picture. I want you to to hear this and then we'll close. Samuel Rutherford, awaiting death in a cell, writes this. If God had told me some time ago that he was about to make me as happy as I could be in this world, and then he told me that he should begin by crippling me in all my limbs and removing from me all my unusual sources of enjoyment, I should have thought it to be a very strange mode of accomplishing his purpose. And yet, how is his wisdom manifest even in this? For if you should see a man shut up in a closed room, idolizing a set of lamps and rejoicing in their light, and you wish to make him truly happy, you would first begin by blowing out all his lamps and then throwing up the shutters to let the light of heaven in. Do you see that? God extinguishes your little lights so you'd see that he is sufficient. Hebrews 13, 5 says this, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray.